0: evening. My name is Vivian Catfield and this is Haunted Muse, a podcast of my freshly written speculative fiction and the often stranger-than-fiction stories behind it. This week, in our third episode of Season 2, a season of short works, I'd like to share a short story that I've written in two different versions. This week's story has a more somber ending, whereas last week's was more hopeful. As I've mentioned, sometimes I do that. I have an idea for a story that could be told in two or more completely different ways. Thus, since the spirit of Season 2 is about choosing which version we like best, I thought I'd put both of them up and let you choose. Therefore, this week we'll hear the sadder, more dystopian second version of my short story, Sheepskins. Also, as I mentioned last week, both versions of the story were partially inspired by the ongoing debates regarding two things in American educational culture, what to do about student loan debt, and how to solve the adjunct crisis. For my thoughts on that whole situation, you can skip back to the first five minutes of last week's episode. Here, however, I'd like to mention a couple of things that have come up from listener comments after last week's podcast. First, one of you asked why I named the pawn shop in the story Fernway Pawn. In German, the word Fernweh, spelled F-E-R-N-W-E-H, translates roughly to wanderlust, but it's much more than that. It's a need to escape to a place one may have never even been. According to a BBC travel article by journalist David Farley that I've linked in the show notes, the difficult-to-translate word, quote, refers to a longing for a different way of life, more carefree and less ordered, end quote. I thought that this concept fit perfectly for my protagonist in the story, Dr. Mallory Clark, who is clearly longing for a do-over in her life, to recapture the sense of youthful exuberance that she had before the highly structured world of higher education wrung it out of her. As for why it's set in a pawn shop, I've always loved stories about pawn shops and antique shops. Needful Things is Stephen King's most underrated book, in my humble opinion. Check it out if you have a chance. Also, when I was growing up, my dad had a pawn shop, and I was always amazed at the myriad of mysterious things people would pawn for pennies. Last, as for the pawnbroker himself and the unusual sign hanging over his watchmaker's bench, that was actually based on an old German clock and watch repairman whom I knew when I was growing up in my hometown. I thought it made an interesting metaphor for a character whose purpose in the story was to fix time for someone else. Given all that, it's probably not the only time you'll find a pawn shop in my work somewhere. I had a very neo-Dickensian childhood in many ways, but more on all that when the time is right. For now, I present a much more ominous and I hope darkly humorous take on the concept of what would a person's education actually be worth if such a thing were offered for resale. Thus, without further ado, I present our short story for this week, Sheepskins, Version 2. Dr. Leah Weston, freshly retired adjunct professor of history from a state school extension campus with a name so long, people always asked her to say it twice, sat in one of the patient conference rooms of the Shearer Institute watching her required patient consultation video. This is worse than those training videos at school, she thought, mindlessly clicking the fast-forward arrow as she tried to skip to the questions at the end of the section. An error message dinged as red letters displayed on the screen. Sorry, but our records indicate you have not finished watching the video in its entirety. Watching the video is required before answering all questions. Please watch the video. Damn it, Leah swore under her breath. At least with the work videos, she could fast-forward. Here it appeared, not so much. Sighing, Leah clicked the Restart Video button. The screen displayed the blandly perfect face of a young blonde girl wearing a navy blue blazer over a white shell, with a sensible set of matching diamond stud earrings and a dainty necklace. At least it was good CGI, she thought. The girl's blink seemed natural, and the movements of her lips matched the voiceover. Leah couldn't help but smile at the absurdity of it all. A professional dress code for a non-existent digital child, representing some nameless rich girl who would soon be the recipient of her transplanted knowledge. Someone who would be known in the parlance of the Shearer Institute as a subscriber, although in truth, it would not be the girl but her parents who subscribed. A person like Leah was called a contributor, partly out of an effort by the Shearer Institute to make those like Leah feel as if they were adding something important to society by selling their memories, thus giving them some sense of agency. Finally reaching the end of the first simulation video, the same bell dinged once more, clamoring for Leah's attention. Question one, a stiffly feminine computerized voice read aloud from the screen. True or false, you are allowed to inform Jill, whether expressly or implied, that you are the source of her memories. Jill was the simulated CGI girl. Leah clicked false and sighed as the voice continued to read the rationale after a short peal of celebratory bells. Correct. Correct. In order to protect the integrity of the process and to allow maximum benefit to society for your contribution, contributors are not allowed to expressly inform or imply to subscribers in any manner that they are the original sources of their memories. To do so would cause the subscriber to doubt their senses of emotional integrity and intellectual self-worth and thus possibly negate their value. Also, to do so represents a violation of the non-disclosure agreement in Section 1.3 of the Contributor Contract, which states, Not wanting to endure a lengthy recitation of the contract she'd just looked over and signed ten minutes ago at the reception desk, Leah took a chance and clicked the fast-forward arrow again. It worked! She checked the list on the clipboard beside her. One role-playing scenario down, Only 29 more to go. An hour later, Leah finished with the training videos and was led by an orderly into a room where she was given a pair of white paper pants and shirt that tied around the back of her neck like a bib. You can keep your underwear on, the orderly said, unless you're wearing a metal underwire bra. That will have to come off too, under the shirt. Wouldn't want to get a nasty shock, now would we? No, we wouldn't. Leah replied. She'd always hated the dual sense of condescension and false familiarity bordering on pretension that using the royal we implied. It had been one of her pet peeves as a professor when she graded student papers. I wonder if I'll still hate it after my contribution, Leah pondered as she stepped out of her tweed slacks and pulled her turtleneck sweater off over her head. According to the video she'd just endured, no part of her memories related to higher education experiences would remain. Had she always despised when people overused the pronoun we, even before she finished college and began teaching? Leah couldn't remember. It had been too many years ago. As she unfolded the crackling paper outfit and slipped it on over her soft wireless sports bra and panties, Leah contemplated how different she'd been as a teenager than this girl. Who would subscribe to her memories. Definitely not someone who'd have to work their way through college at a coffee shop, Leah thought, but also much smarter than I was. That was the thing nowadays for families who could afford it. The internet pundits dubbed it prosperity parenting, the idea of keeping children at home with private tutors until they reached approximately the age of high school freshmen and pushing them to focus on only the hard academic skills in the maths and sciences. The STEM fields of study with the surest pathways to monetary security, hence the name. All distractions provided by sports or arts were minimized. Having no other creative outlets for expression or social interaction introduced to them, the children had no choice but to exercise their natural curiosities solely on innovations in technology and the sciences. Thus, by the time that kids of previous decades had barely graduated high school, the children produced under the prosperity parenting model had often started several successful business ventures, making their financial future secure. However, the problem with this new prosperity parenting model was that, having been given few, if any, opportunities to interact with their peers and no humanities education to speak of, many of those children simply couldn't cope even with basic day-to-day office environment interactions. Rates of anxiety, depression, and suicide among teens had skyrocketed until a study was published about a new technique that claimed to solve the problem. The study, conducted by a then-unknown team of neuroscientists, psychologists, and sociologists, and led by a doctor, Simon Shearer, found that through the means of transferent electroshock therapy from one person to another, a contributor could transfer their memories, along with some of their learned behaviors for empathy, to a subscriber. This process enabled child prodigies produced by prosperity parenting techniques to purchase the only important skill that they'd never been given the time to master, human social interaction. Over time, it was determined that the best types of memories to transmit in such a manner were the ones of former humanities PhDs. Having such a highly developed level of empathy and understanding of the human condition was considered to be an ideal counterbalance for the raw intellect of young students who'd been raised under the prosperity parenting model, and whose only prior education had been in the so called hard subjects within that curriculum. Sometimes it didn't take. But it had over a 60% success rate, which was enough for many parents to give it a try. Also, since the need for humanities based learning on a standalone basis continued to shrink with each passing year, there was simply no logical use for such skills otherwise past the mandatory state school professor's retirement age of 55. Thus, former humanities scholars, most of whom had been underemployed as adjuncts during the majority of their careers anyway, suddenly found themselves in high demand as contributors of their educational memories on the eve of what would have normally been their precariously funded retirements. The prices paid by the parents of subscribers were handsome, too, more than enough to fund 20 or 30 years of idleness and old age. It was certainly more than the marginalized academic workers who'd spent their entire lives without health insurance ever expected to receive especially since Social Security had been defunded. The procedure was simple, too, and not physically painful after the initial shock wore off. The only catch was what it took away, in addition to the memories associated with their education. Leah had heard the horror stories about contributors whose mental slates had been wiped so clean by the process that they spent their remaining years drooling and staring at walls. Burnouts they were called. Those for whom the amount of electroshock during their transference had been turned up just a little bit too high. Yet Leah felt reassured by the many reports she'd read about contributors who'd been perfectly fine after making their contributions. Their success rate was over 99% released from the burdens of being culturally awakened and self-acknowledged members of society, for some, it was like a second chance at life, a childhood reclaimed for those who had been souls too old to start with, not to mention the fact that every contribution compensation package came with a get-out-of-student-loans-jail-free card. In the end, the decision was a no-brainer. Tying the neck of her paper shirt securely, Leah pushed the button for the intercom to summon the orderly. Settling into her wheelchair as the orderly pushed her into the transference room and fitted the electrode cap to her head, Leah willed her mind to go blank. Feeling the needle for the sedative slip into her arm, she sighed deeply. When she awakened, Leah promised herself, she would be in a better world a world where she could pay her rent and buy groceries on the same day without checking her bank account first, when where she could finally afford to travel and see all of the places she'd only read and studied about from afar. That is, she thought, as her eyes closed under the anesthetic, if I still remember where they are. Awakening hours later, Leah couldn't figure out why her entire body felt so sore. The recovery room nurse patted her hand and reassured Leah that it was normal. You just don't remember all the little everyday aches and pains, dear, of being 55. The nurse handed Leah a small paper cup of aspirin and a bottle of water. Then she pulled up a small table to the side of Leah's hospital bed. Swinging the little arm of it over like a lap desk, the nurse clicked on the digital tablet. Instantly, Leah was greeted by her own face, speaking in another video to explain her current circumstances. Her thoughts were fuzzy at first, but hearing her own voice reassured Leah of the next steps in her recovery plan. Although she didn't remember her initial consultation on her own, this video, which had been recorded before the transfer, served as a reminder of what would happen next, as well as her consent to the procedure and the NDA thus absolving the staff of the Shearer Institute from all liability for any unexpected consequences. The remainder of Leah's afternoon was spent with a series of therapists who checked everything from her ability to walk and eat to the dimensions of her short and long-term memories that remained after her contribution. Having been declared as mentally sound as any person with an approximately 18-year-old brain might be, the doctors discharged Leah to the payment office where she digitally signed her acceptance of the money she'd received as well as a letter of dismissal to take her to the loan office uh, to cancel her student debts. When they finished, the accounting clerk handed Leah a manila envelope filled with checklists and reminders of everything else that she would need to know in order to resume her life before the contribution. Keys, her phone, important phone numbers and addresses of her family and friends, all on one sheet of paper. Since smartphones hadn't been available when Leah was 18, she had no memory of them, and she needed a little extra time with an occupational therapist on what they were for and how to use one. But by that time, her mind was sharp again, and she picked it up quickly. By the end, they even had a rideshare car waiting to take her home to her apartment, since driving wasn't recommended for at least 24 hours after the procedure, because it could temporarily affect reflex time. The doctors at the Shearer Institute thought of everything. At home, Leah opened the door to her apartment and was greeted by an excited tan-colored cat. Pulling out a photo from the manila envelope, Leah recognized the resemblance and said the name of the cat, printed in the caption. Abby? Abby trilled a happy purr and hopped into her lap as Leah sat down to read the rest of the prompt about her in the lifestyle portion of the paperwork. Abby is the patient's Abyssinian cat. Acquired as a rescue, she has lived with the patient for seven years and is current on all of her shots. Her ownership and vaccination records are kept in the top drawer of the patient's filing cabinet marked Personal. Abby prefers flaked wet foods to pate and is fed twice a day. By this time, Abby had begun patting at the corner of Leah's mouth, impatiently. Checking her watch, Leah rose from the sofa and began opening the kitchen cabinet doors one by one noting what was contained inside as best she could. That was the procedure recommended by her therapist, to re-explore everything around her apartment carefully so that she could recommit everything there to memory. If she had any trouble, she could consult the materials in the manila envelope, they'd said, or call. Finding the food, Leah opened it for the happy cat, who dove on it excitedly. Pleased with how this first task of re-establishing her memory had gone, Leah began to walk around her apartment, opening closet doors and examining everything. To her delight, there were numerous sticky notes in her own handwriting, explaining what many items were and why they were significant. This is going to be a piece of cake, she thought. The kitchen table was plastered with sticky notes, as well as a pile of printed documents. Picking them up, Leah noticed the first page was an itinerary for the next day, listing step by step what she was supposed to do. Finish the laundry. Drop off Abby for boarding at the vet's office on the way to the airport in the morning. Exchange a few hundred dollars for Egyptian pounds for pocket money. Egyptian pounds, Leah wondered, flipping through the remainder of the pages to see a confirmation number for her flight and explicit instructions about her hotel reservation, but no further explanation regarding the reason for the trip. She turned to Abby, who was cleaning her whiskers. Why am I going to Egypt? Cat didn't respond, so Leah began to prowl her apartment once more, hoping to find some clues as to why she planned to take the trip. On a wall inside the smaller bedroom of her apartment, which was marked with another sticky note that said, study, Leah found an answer. A copy of the poem Ozymandias hung in a gilded frame, and taped to the frame was another document, consisting of several pages stapled together. Leah removed it and began reading. When she finished, she glanced around the room. Small statues stared back at her from overloaded bookshelves, each labeled with its own note. Ramses II, Bastet, Isis. There were notes stuck to some of the books, too. When she pulled them out, they were dog-eared with countless notes that said simply, in rushed, urgent letters, Read this. Look at this. Remember. Remember. An Egyptologist who's never been to Egypt? she asked as Abby strolled into the study, winding herself around Leah's legs. That's pretty sad. Guess that's why I'm going. Leah's file and post-transfer consultation hadn't mentioned what kind of history she'd studied, only that she'd been a part-time contingent faculty member. Stooping to pet the cat, Leah noticed a small uneven pyramid made out of rough ceramic. With a shock, Leah remembered making it in ninth grade ceramics class. Picking it up, she turned it over in her hands. Carved into the bottom were the words Leah Weston, 94. Someday you'll see the real one. Setting the little pyramid back on the shelf, Leah returned to the kitchen and reviewed the stack of documents on the table again as well as the ones in the manila envelope. Then she returned to her study and stared at the beige wall over her desk. Three sticky notes, each marked sheepskins, were posted inside the barely visible outlines of where her diplomas had hung. Bachelor's, Master's, Doctor's. There had been a receipt for them in the manila envelope to memorialize the fact that she'd turned them in, as required by the terms of her contribution contract. Leah took down the sticky notes and tossed them in the trash can. For the rest of the night, she sat up reading passage after passage that she'd marked in her books, devouring every page as if for the first time. The blankness of the empty wall of her study loomed behind her. Arriving at the airport the next morning bleary-eyed from lack of sleep, but nevertheless enlivened by massive quantities of coffee, Leah checked into her flight. Not able to read every page she longed to, Leah had brought along an entire extra suitcase filled with the books and checked it in with her other luggage. It had been quite a wrangle, getting everything that she needed into her old Army Surplus Store duffel bag, only to have the strap break under the weight. She'd tossed all the books into a laundry basket and barely had enough time to run through Target for a sturdier suitcase after dropping Abby off for boarding at the vet before heading on to the airport. But she'd made it. Settling into the waiting area for her Egypt air flight with a sigh of relief, Leah pulled a book out of her canvas tote bag. "'What are you reading?' Leah looked up from her book. A pretty blonde girl with pale blue eyes and a gold nameplate necklace that said, "'Elodie,' watched her expectantly for an answer. "'The rise and fall of ancient Egypt,' Leah replied." trying to squeeze in all the knowledge I can before we take off. Hopefully I can catch a nap on the flight. I didn't sleep a wink last night. I was so excited. Elodie scrunched her perfectly upturned nose. Ugh, I can't imagine actually wanting to go. She kicked out with one platform sandaled foot, knocking over a set of matching rainbow-printed Louis Vuitton luggage which appeared to be significantly more than the usual size allowed for carry-ons. Mom's making me. Because of this new subscription I got yesterday, wish it could have been like a painter or something. That would have been so lit to have some more art knowledge, you know? Because I'm like a programmer. All that design principle shit helps. Then we could have gone to Paris too, which I high-key love. But no, I got this basic history bitch's contribution instead, so like now I've got a brain full of all this useless history trash. Apparently she was some kind of Egypt nut, so here we go to Cairo, because mom couldn't wait. Karen thought I needed some culture stat, and accepting a history contribution was less wait time than for a real artist. Why are you going? It took Leah a moment to register that Elodie had actually asked her a question at the end. She was still trying to decode the rest of what the girl had said. Actually, I've been looking forward to visiting Egypt my whole life. I love history. It's just that now's the first time I've had the money to be able to afford to go. Personally, I think it's a privilege to be able to go while you're still so young. You should appreciate it. I would have given anything, I think. Bet. Elodie replied sarcastically, dragging out the word. Squinting at Leah as if trying to decipher a code written on her forehead, the girl twirled the shockingly pink streak in the front of her hair around her finger and fidgeted nervously in her seat. Tapping her long, jailed nails in a relentless rhythm, she said, I'm finna get a drink. Yeet! Watching her shuffle off in her sweatpants and fuzzy flip-flops, Leah shook her head. Then, it clicked. Stuffing her book back in the tote bag quickly, Leah checked her watch. Still half an hour left until her flight. Hopefully, Elodie hadn't realized who she was. If so, that could be dangerous. Perhaps she could just hide in the bathroom until it was time to board and then hang back so that the girl had time to get on first. Maybe then it would blow over. "'You're just being paranoid. You didn't say anything to her about the contribution,' Leah whispered to herself. "'No way. That could have violated the NDA. It's just a random conversation.' Still, it was better for the girl not to see her again. Leah began walking toward the ladies' room as quickly as she could without drawing attention. Ma'am. Too late, Leah thought, but kept walking. Ma'am. Leah turned around to see an airport security agent break into a run as the girl's mother pointed. That's her. Instinctively, Leah knew better than to run. She simply put her hands up and waited for the agents to cuff her. In the questioning room, after the police arrived to record video statements, Leah told them everything that she could remember from her conversation with Elodie. The girl sobbed about how triggering it was that Leah had shamed her for not thinking that it was a privilege to be able to go to Egypt so young. Then her mother burst into tears too and swore to buy Elodie another subscription to replace the one from Leah, which she also promised to have canceled because it was faulty. How does that even work? Leah asked. I thought once the memories were transplanted, there was no taking them back. Actually, the officer replied, hitting the send button on the tablet and then watching the screen expectantly for a verdict, they can be canceled by the subscriber, just not returned to the contributor. They just toss the old sheepskins out and process a refund or arrange another transfer. Who pays for that? Leah scoffed as the tablet dinged to signal the verdict's return. The officer chuckled to himself as he hit print. (laughs) I love this new 24-7 InstaVerdict app. Never thought we'd go from statements to judgments in under an hour. It's so easy. He crossed the questioning room and took two sheets of paper out of the printer. He motioned for Leah to come closer and pay attention as he pulled a highlighter out of his pocket. This one is a citation for the microaggression, $500 misdemeanor, payable in district criminal court, cash only. Plus 20 hours of community service at the cultural sensitivity training center that must be completed within 30 days. We can't have people going around insulting one another and shaming teenagers, now can we? He drew a yellow line across the words for emphasis and handed it to Leah. It's a first offense, so we ask for no probation, he grimaced. Besides, we knew this restitution was going to hurt enough. The officer drew a yellow line across the sum on the second page. But that's the whole amount that I received for my contribution, Leah exclaimed. The officer shrugged. Judgment said that's what was in the NDA. Any form of disclosure to the subscriber, whether expressed or implied, will result in full forfeiture of compensation to cover the cost of a refund. Sorry, but we can't make any exceptions. It's probably already gone if you received a direct deposit. Hopefully you didn't spend too much of it already. Otherwise, you might want to check your overdraft protection. Just then, Leah's cell dinged with a flurry of notifications. Ding! All of the money from her contribution compensation agreement was gone. Ding! She just incurred an overdraft charge for her flight to Cairo. Ding! The airline regretted to inform her that since she'd checked in but failed to board, her flight would be charged the full price anyway. Ding! She'd just incurred a second overdraft charge for her insta-verdict fine of $500. Ding! The Cultural Sensitivity Training Center was happy to welcome Leah on her first steps toward becoming a kinder person. "'Can we go now?' Elodie whined. "'I'm hella bored.' "'You're free to go any time,' the officer replied. "'We wouldn't want to inconvenience you any further.' "'Look on the bright side,' Leah said. Elodie's mother bristled, waiting to pounce. "'At least now you don't have to go to Egypt. "'Maybe next time you'll get a painter.' "'Yes!' Elodie hissed, her blue eyes growing wide with the realization. "'Thanks for not getting salty with me over all this L.' it's all good. Live your best life. I'm out. Leah waited for Elodie and her mother to get all the way down the corridor before she left the questioning room. Then, as she exited the airport, Leah stopped in at the coffee shop. A sign in the window read, We're always hiring. Not knowing why, Leah winced, but she filled out the application on her phone anyway. She still had bills to pay. This is the end of the short story, Sheepskins, version 2, by Vivian Catfield. Be sure to tune in next week for another new story here on the Haunted Muse podcast. Until then, this is Vivian Catfield, reminding you to remain ever watchful, because you never can tell. Someone, or something, somewhere out there, just might, be watching you